Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Greco-Persian Wars were a turning point in Western history, an inflection at which the fate of democracy was decided, and a few brave men defended the ideals that we hold dear to this day against a horde of invading barbarians. Or at least, that's how this conflict is often presented, at least in popular media. So how well does this reputation stand up to scrutiny? Let's begin. I'm here on HI 101 with Seraph Downey. That's me. That's you. And uh, we're going to talk about the Greco-Persian War today. Uh, this is our. Uh, this is not not the first take we've had on this one. So it's not the second take either. <laughs> it's not the second take either. It's been it's been a long one, y'all. Uh, we have had a chance though to have a couple discussions at uh, at the uh, at the intro of this on. Uh, I, I believe you accuse me of burying the lead, uh, which yeah. is that this shouldn't be called the the Greco-Persian War, but rather the, the the 300 episode. I think it was. That was exactly my accusation. <laughs> uh, the the reasoning, uh, I suppose, if you need any reasoning to talk about such a, a famous topic, being that on August 20th of this year, August 20th, 2021, it will be the 2500th anniversary of the Battle of Thermopylae between the uh, the 300 Spartans, kind of, maybe, we'll get to that, between the 300 Spartans and the uh, massive Persian army. Uh, forever immortalized very accurately in the Zack Snyder film 300. Those gates, so hot. So hot. Um, do you know why they were so hot? Um, summer? There's actually a hot spring right at that, uh, at that passageway in, uh, uh, in Greece that um, mm. they actually used that. We're jumping way far ahead. They may have actually used those hot springs to narrow the amount of like fight, like land you can fight on by creating like really marshy uh, terrain. Oh, that's clever. But that's, that's why they're the hot gates. It's because there's, there's a, a natural hot spring there. So yeah, I don't know. I figured uh, I figured that was as good a reason to talk about this as any because it is really a, a fairly well known battle in or a, a war in history, and uh, and I think everybody's sort of heard of it in, in some sort of capacity. And honestly, I'm a little bit surprised that nobody's asked me to do this topic before. I, it hasn't even been like a second or third runner that we uh, that we dismissed. It's just simply never come up. So uh, why not now? Yeah, I think there's a lot of us, uh, us being the guests, mm -hmm. uh, who would be interested in it, too. I mean, my introduction to Spartans was through Halo, uh, <laughs> but, you know, I quickly learned why they were called Spartans and then looked up the, 
the Battle of Thermopylae and was just like, oh, neat. Yeah. And then there was that movie by that guy. I've already forgotten. You it's, said his name. Uh, Snack Zider? That's the guy. Sure. It's it's It looks great. I it think, is a very fun watch. I think we can all agree it looks very good. Yes. I This is not a movie podcast, but I will forever and always <laughs> maintain that Zack Snyder should have just remained a director of photography and left it at that. Yeah. He can frame a shot. Uh, there's no denying that. Anyways, we're not here to talk about Zack Snyder. We're here to talk about actual events and actual history. I guess I just implied that Zack Snyder doesn't exist, didn't I? I mean, 20-year rule. He's at... <laughs> That puts him at a, a much younger date, at the very least, for what we can talk about. True. That is true. Um, I think the other thing that really interests me about this topic is that the sourcing that we have on it is very one-sided. Um, really, everything we have is through Greek sources, or there's a, a Roman source that's uh, fairly useful. So uh, Herodotus being the most famous one, father of history and all of that with his histories. There's also Thucydides, who follows up on uh, Herodotus's work uh, regarding the Peloponnesian War, who talks about a lot of this stuff. And then there was Plutarch, who was writing on this uh, in Rome five or 600 years after and I know normally that would be the kind of thing that would make you look sideways at it, but he was actually referencing contemporary sources that are are now lost to us. But because of those those references corroborated by Herodotus, we have pretty good reason to believe that they're about as accurate as anything you're going to get out of that period. So there are no actual Persian sources on any of this, though. And so I, I think we tend to get this picture of this war as being you know, extremely dramatic and just missing the end of the world. And, you know, the there's often an angle of like the, 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 the preservation of democracy and Western ideals and all of this. And I, I think, Yawn. yeah, I know, I know, I know. But, but realistically, that is, that is how we tend to see this portrayed, right? Like, yeah. and I'm sure you've seen the same thing around and it's not just a history thing. It's a pop culture thing, right? It's a, it's a democracy nearly died and it was these 300 men that, that saved it. And it's kind of like, well, I guess. I mean, didn't democracy actually die? Uh, I mean, democracy has died many, many times over the histories, which is why, like, I, I, I'm, I'm less inclined to get on board with that whole thing. Yeah, right. I was just thinking, I'm just like, wait, but like Rome falls. Well, yeah, yeah. No, you're, you're, you're absolutely and then right. We all go, we all go monarchical. Yeah. And well, it's... and before that, Greek, Greece falls, right? Like, yeah, right. Like, it's, it's wait not, a second. It's not as though there's this. You know, uh, there's this like Olympic torch flame that can, you know, you know, carried <laughs> yeah. from one to another and it's never gone out since, you know, exactly in uh, uh, 508 BCE when it's when democracy is founded in Athens. Like, that's not how this works at all. Also, let, let's talk about the quality of uh, 508 BC Greek uh, democracy. Well, yeah, I mean, we could spend some time on that, I suppose. We don't have to get super deep, but you're absolutely right. Uh, power to all the people means power to exactly 500 very, very rich and wealthy men. Um, right. Anyways, we're, we're once again jumping ahead. I, I think the real, well, we'll get into what 
really was, I suppose, preserved, if anything, during those wars. I think more was destroyed on both sides than than preserved, but I, I don't think that's a fair assessment of it. It's just something that we see because the people writing about it, especially in the form of, of uh, Herodotus, are people who lived through this time or very shortly after this time and are very much looking at it through their own lived experience of like, wow, my life would have been very different if the Persians had won. And fair, you know, that's that's completely mm -hmm. fair. But we also don't have that Persian other side of things, at least directly. Um, we've had to sort of piece it together over the years. And it turns out... What's up with that? Where, where, like, why why no Persian uh, history here? Was, it, was recording history not quite their deal yet, or was it all destroyed? I mean, we have bits and pieces. I, I think the, the more... Um, this is gonna make me sound like a bit of a jerk, but like the better question here is how did how did uh, Herodotus survive for 2500 years in as mm. complete a form as it did? Um, I, I think that's more extraordinary than it is to be missing like a very detailed uh, analysis of the history from the Persian side. Keep in mind that while Herodotus isn't necessarily considered like good history, he tends to like insert a lot of stories and like morality stuff and, and things like that. He'll create speeches from whole cloth before battles he'll be like and then king whoever says this and this and this to his men to inspire them and it's like you couldn't know that yeah <laughs> this happened 300 years before you lived are you there Herodity? <laughs> absolutely not um, that's my nickname for him okay i'm fine with this we have like a very like ignoring all of that when you look at the broad strokes herodotus does a pretty reasonable job or at least is well backed up by what other evidence we have and there aren't a lot of reasons to to doubt uh most of the broad strokes at the very least he's also performing a type of history that really hasn't existed before uh he's writing it which is he's looking at something that happened namely the greco-persian wars and he's going okay i want to know the cause of this this is like a very you sort of line of thinking, actually. I was just going to say, my boy. <laughs> uh, he's he's going like, OK, but like something must have caused all this. And like, don't tell me that the cause is, well, the gods, you know, whatever. Right. Because a lot of Greek stuff, it's like, you know, Zeus got mad and this is the result. You know, you look at mm -hmm. uh, uh, Homer, like the, the Trojan War and things like that. Right. It's it all starts off with this uh, squabble between Greek gods and then it spills over into the affairs of mortals and blah, blah, blah. No, that's not what really yeah. happened. And they all know that. Like, there's a lot of, like, allegory that goes into it. But Herodotus is going, like, let's cut around that. Like, let, like what's, let's talk about the actual things that actual people did and, and work on it from there. So for the Persians, like, that's just, like, no one's ever done it before. So it's just not a style of writing that exists. Um, writing in the Ecumenid Empire at that point, which is, like, the proper name for the, the Persian Empire that we're talking about, at least, is things like uh, record keeping. It's things like uh, taxes. It's things like laws. Um, there are some records keeping, but it's not, it, it doesn't have that sort of like analysis that goes along with it. And there isn't like a lot of it. Um, so that's, that's why you're not seeing as much or nearly as much from the Ecumenid Empire. The other thing is like, they don't, like it's it's a much more volatile region of of uh, of the world. Not that Greece doesn't have its its issues, obviously, but um, we tend to see a little bit more uh, antiquities destruction uh, in in the the Fertile Crescent area than we do mm. in in the Greek area. Anyway, that's a whole bunch of different uh, reasons, but 
yeah, the, 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 the ultimate uh, result of that is we simply just don't have it. Fair enough. As far as the Persians are concerned, like the Greeks don't really come into this story for them, at least for a little while. We're going to spend a while talking about the Persians uh, and, and not even bother mentioning the Greeks. And uh, since I knew that you were going to ask about it anyways, I have taken things as far back in history as I possibly can. <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, because I knew you would ask anyways. Uh, and because it's, it is actually relevant. I think it gives people a bit of an idea of, you know, a very brief, broad history of that uh, Fertile Crescent region of the world uh, since uh, history began, uh, you know, being recorded. So about 1000 BCE, some nomads, they're horse archers. They're coming from, you know, uh, the northern steppes. steps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, probably Caucasus Mountains area uh, is the best guess. Uh, mm. They settle uh, a region called Persis in the north of modern day Iran. These nomads, when they settle in, very quickly fall under the influence of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Um, this empire is our link all the way back. So Assyria originates as an outpost of uh, the Sumerians. The Sumerians are the first uh, or, or one of the earliest uh, civilizations that we know of to develop writing. Uh, the last episode we did was on was on writing. These are the guys who invented cuneiform, you know, putting the little wedge-shaped characters into clay. They, as far as we know, are the oldest uh, writing system uh, in the world. You know, it's a long enough time ago that you don't need to be all that far away to sort of uh, become a satellite and then maybe an independent thing. That's what the Assyrian Empire is. Um, Assyria and, and uh, Sumeria split off and eventually Assyrian leaders will actually conquer Sumer and then Sumerian leaders will conquer Assyria. They'll go back and forth in varying degrees of of independence. But there is a direct line there from that that first, you know, Mesopotamian uh, civilization. These civilizations are like a really complicated web of client states, vassals. There's a lot of bureaucracy involved. Like all of that writing, it turns out, lets you keep a lot of records. And keeping a lot of records, it turns out, uh, helps you manage uh, a lot of very complicated ways to exert influence over other people. It's a really useful tool that way, it turns out. What are you saying? Human memory is not infallible? <laughs> it's not infallible. Uh, it's absolutely not infallible and writing's not infallible either, but it's a lot easier to keep a bunch of it around. Um, you know, all of these, all of these client states are, are paying tribute back and forth, paying for armies, things like that. But it's really the first human project in a really large, uh, and fairly diverse empire. Most of the other regions of the world, you're going to be seeing like fairly tribal, fairly, uh, ethnically and linguistically homogenous, uh, groups. And um, it's, it's going to be unusual to have, for example, different language groups under a single ruler or uh, different, uh, like, like different religious practices, things like that. The Assyrian Empire is really the first major project in figuring out how to rule in that way. About 620 or so BCE, uh, the Assyrian Empire enters into a civil war. Lots of complicated backstory for it weak leader, you know, overstretched, all sorts of stuff. We don't have to get super deep into it. The point is that their leadership was in vast crisis. And in the midst of all of this, several client states end up uh, first uh, completely stopping tribute, which only serves to exacerbate the civil war because now there's less money to spend on 
uh, armies and things like that. Uh, it, it, and, and it kind of tightens up the uh, obligations of the empire, which, you know, raises uh, tensions, more civil war, et cetera, et cetera. All starts with the money. Sounds like a bit of a nasty feedback loop. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't take these uh, these client states too long to realize that uh, several of them are probably powerful enough to uh, break independence. So there's specifically three groups that end up uh, separating separating themselves from uh, the the Neo Assyrian Empire. One is uh, the Neo Babylonian Empire, one is the Lydian Empire, and one is the Median Empire. Uh, Neo Babylonians are sort of further south. They're kind of in an arc between like. Uh, the Sinai Peninsula and the Sea of Arabia across the top of uh, the Arabian Peninsula. The Lydians are further north. They're, uh, they're, they rule over a pretty decent chunk of uh, Asia Minor. Um, so uh, like Anatolia, the, the, the Asian portion of modern day Turkey. Uh, yeah. And then the Medians are initially kind of fairly far south on the, uh, uh, on the Arabian Sea. The Median Empire is very, very short-lived, but it's like a pretty bright flash in the pan. We have very few direct uh, uh, records of it, and there have actually been certain historians that have argued that they might not have been a proper full-fledged empire. Those are fringe, but like it also kind of gives you an idea of like how sparse the uh, the evidence is for them. The Medians, after breaking independent, decide that they are feeling extra ambitious in the in the wake of the the you know internal collapse of the Assyrians and they decide to uh, ally with the Babylonians to completely overthrow Assyrian leadership and to everyone's surprise in 609 BCE they actually managed to do this they invade the capital they managed to kill the king and they're kind of like okay all of this is ours now I guess and the Median Empire suddenly becomes one of the largest empires in the entire world just by kind of being in the right place at the right time and taking advantage of a, a you know sort of a, a opportunity i suppose not for long not for long you're absolutely right uh so between the medians the babylonians the egyptians and the lydians you kind of get to a bit of a balance of powers, I suppose. You get this every once in a while, like a spheres of influence kind of thing, where it seems like each power is sort of large enough to exert power in their own region, but not so big that they couldn't be held in check by the other powers combined. And this usually leads to some uh, stability, um, but that's not going to be the case here. The Median uh, king that actually, you know, overthrew the Assyrians, uh, Cyaxerxes, his son, was actually the uh, the last Median Empire. So there were two. His son, Astyages, basically the way that the, the empire was structured, each of the kingdoms within the empire kept their, their crown. So they were still kings, and then there was an empire, uh, emperor that was superseding all of them. Uh, adds like an extra layer of, uh, of power on top of uh, kingship, I suppose. Cyaxerxes' son, or grandson, sorry, uh, King Cyrus II of Persia, uh, also known as Cyrus the Great, which oh, is usually a, that boy is gonna f some up. Which is usually a clue. Yeah, things are gonna go down. Uh, <laughs> Cyrus II was not terribly happy about this uh, arrangement. 
he's kind of sitting there going like i'm king and i still have to pay tribute like this is kind of bull like what what kind of arrangement is this anyways and he decides to put uh, persia into revolt against the median empire in 553 bce so he's going to war directly against his grandfather and this should not have worked persia was very very small and yet, just three years later in 550 BCE, he manages to, uh, in the course of a, a series of, of really quick heated battles, they manage to actually break through uh, Astyages' uh, bodyguard and kidnap him and like take him back with them as ransom. And with that sort of personal leadership out the window, uh, his armies start going into a bit of disarray, and the Persians manage to take the Median capital. And Astyages actually lives through this, which is frankly shocking. Uh, but his grandson basically says he's nothing anymore. There is no Median Empire anymore, so he can't be emperor of it. Uh, I'm founding a new emp empire. You know, 50 years later, come on, man. Uh, I'm founding a new empire. This is going to be called the Ecumenid Empire. And this is named after the uh, the founder of the dynasty, like seven generations back. But he renames the whole thing and, you know, again, becomes very suddenly leader of one of the largest empires in the world. Multicultural, multi multilingual, uh, you know, various religions. It's a very complicated mechanism. And as you can see, it's not always terribly functional, the the leadership is very vulnerable to like personal attack and so one of the first things that he does uh cyrus i mean is he abolishes all those independent kingships below him basically to make sure that nobody gets the same sort of idea that he got himself yeah it makes some sense no no more of these uppity kings uh-huh this process is not clean or easy there's uh there's definitely some revolt uh, that needs to be put down within the Median Empire. It's not as though he just captures the, the, the capital and everything is fine and ready to go. No, I've played Civilization. I know how this goes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You uh, pacify those, those, those town folk. Yeah. King Croesus of Lydia decides that he can take on someone named Cyrus the Great, which honestly, that should have been his first clue. Yikes. Definitely a name he had already earned at the time, right? Ah, uh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, he's going to do more for it, but, you know, we're, we're already <laughs> getting there. Um, Croesus figures, you know, exact same thing that everybody else that we've talked about so far has figured, which is, hey, things are in turmoil. Let's take this opportunity uh, and get Lydia a little bit more uh, of what Lydia deserves, right? Like, let's expand a little bit. Let's get some more power. There's a story, and, and this is kind of what I was talking about with uh, with Herodotus, is he tends to put stories in that like are impossible to verify and are frankly inconsequential, but he seems to think that they help to explain motivations. Mm. Um, there's this story that uh, Croesus goes to uh, Delphi and goes to the oracle there and asks the oracle whether or not he should rebel against uh, the new Achaemenid Empire. And the oracle tells him that if he were to go to war against the Ecumenids, uh, he would be destroying a great empire. And Croesus went, great, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to destroy the great empire of, of the Ecumenids. And, oh, the hubris, the irony. This is Macbeth bullshit. 
it's 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 like it's like Genie english rules. teacher it's english yeah. teacher level cla- <laughs> like like uh not literature literary literary irony but dramatic irony that's yeah. what i'm looking for like this is like this is like textbook definition Oh, you know, what was the king who did not realize through his hubris that what the empire he was truly destroying was his own? And let that be a lesson to you all. Um, yeah, Herodotus <laughs> is often trying to set a good moral example through his history. And this is a, a good example of, of understanding, you know, understanding your place, understanding uh, pride. So I suppose it goes without saying, you know, after the way we're talking about this, Lydia is completely defeated by the Ecumenid Empire. Yeah, absolutely destroyed. Absolutely destroyed. Completely absorbed into uh, the Ecumenid Empire, which remember, that means that they now take up half of those four spheres of influence we were talking about earlier, right? Sounds Um, good and balanced. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's swiftly tilting in the wrong direction. And it's, it's not, it's not like a full, like full bore momentum type takeover of the rest of the region. Cyrus does take a couple of years to kind of bring some of those peripheral kingdoms back into the fold, put down some uh, unrest, especially in Lydia, obviously, or what was Lydia. But by the time he gets to 539 or so BCE, we're looking at war with, uh, with Babylon. And with the capture of the city of Babylon and the destruction of that empire, that brings the Ecumenid Empire back up to the size of Neo-Assyria. And what goes along with that is a claim of lineage. Uh, and we've talked about this with other with other topics, like especially uh, you and I, where, uh, you know, with, with Russia talking about like this claim of lineage from Rome, where it's kind of like, it's it's as much symbolic as anything else, but also symbols really mean things, especially in the context of politics and monarchy and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, Cyrus is now able to claim that he has a lineage from Assyria, which means he has a lineage from Sumeria, which means he has a lineage from like the, the great civilizations uh, of the region. In uh, 530 BCE, uh, Cyrus has died at this point, but his, his son Cambyses II in, invades Egypt and is successful in uh, defeating Egypt and folding Egypt into the Ecumenid Empire. Sounds like a big empire. It's huge. It's it's massive. In fact, at this point, like the 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 height of the or when we get to the height of the Ecumenid Empire, it's actually the largest empire in the world uh, up until Alexander the Great. Dang, it's large. It is, it is spacious. Uh, Cambyses does die on campaign in Africa, but he's, he's, uh, he's succeeded by his uh, younger brother, uh, Bardia. Maybe. There's two stories that happen at this point, depending on who you want to listen to. Okay. One story is that Bardia is a little bit less strong of a, a leader than Cambyses II, and there's a strong faction within the aristocracy of the Ecumenid Empire who doesn't want him on the throne. And this faction is uh, led by a noble named Darius. Uh, this is Darius I, also known as Darius the Great. We all know what that means. He's pretty good. And so they put together a conspiracy, they stage a coup, Bardia is killed after only a few months of rule, and Darius is put on the throne of the Ecumenid Empire. 
The second story, if you want to listen to what Darius and his followers say, is that Bardia was never actually put on the throne. Bardia was actually killed several years before, and uh, a magus imposter named Galmata, uh, as in like the Magi, like a magus uh, a member of the uh, Zoroastrian priesthood. Uh, was attempting to, through subversion and deceit, take over the Ecumenid Empire by impersonating Bardia. And they were attempting to overthrow the leadership. And Darius and his followers were doing a great patriotic service by removing him uh, from leadership. They were riding the ship, as it were. Well, the latter one has a lot more uh, intrigue, but also a lot more uh, propaganda stank. Sure does. And, and I mean, the story there is like, well, the real Bardia was dead anyways, and the lineage was over. So who else to take over the rulership but Darius? Mm-hmm. Um, this looked about as fishy at the time uh, as it does to us. Um, I, I would say if I was uh, was going to put money on it, uh, we would go with the whole he killed the actual Bardia thing. But here we are. Darius is now on the throne. This is a very messy coup. This is, uh, it, it really isn't received well by the members of the Ecumenid Empire. And remember, this isn't a matter of, uh, you know, th- this isn't like a, a, a king as we would normally think about it in this period, being overthrown by somebody else who takes over the kingship, where it's just kind of like, well, they're the king now and we're still the same group. There's very much a sense of like, well, we're part of the Ecumenid Empire now, but we haven't always been. And that means we could splinter off again and go our own way if we don't agree with leadership. And this is a dire enough circumstance that it might be worth considering that. Hmm. It's a significantly harder thing to manage. And uh, that's exactly what ends up happening. There's there's massive upheaval, uh, upheaval uh, many internal revolts, uh, and, and years of attempts to get control of the empire again. In the course of the first year of Darius's reign, uh, he suppressed revolts in every major historic territory of the Ecumenid Empire. That means there was a revolt in Babylon, there was a, revol- a revolt in Lydia, there was a revolt in Egypt, like all of them. All of them had massive revolts, and he spent several years basically marching his army around uh, the Fertile Crescent, trying to just hang on to control of this territory. It sounds like a good time. Yeah, uh, it was extremely messy. Um, Egypt uh, was especially difficult to pacify, but eventually they were successful. And after his uh, after his, his success in Egypt. Um, Darius turned his eyes eastward and actually expanded all the way into the Indus Valley in northern India. So his empire stretches uh, as far south as uh, as Egypt, uh, as far west as uh, Thebes, which is sort of like uh, where Turkey and Greece would meet today, with a little bit of Bulgaria in there. It's the uh, it's the European side of Turkey. Okay. Uh, so he's got territory there. It stretches as far north as the Black Sea, uh, and it starts stretches as far east as India. It is it is enormous. So what does any of this have to do with the Greeks? Yeah, I mean Greece is pretty far away. 
Greece, yeah, I, I suppose. But I mean, the the thing to uh, to understand about Greece in the period is that Greece is actually much bigger, uh, or at least more spread out than modern day Greece. Um, mm, Greece fair. is Greece. The, the 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 makeup of Greece in this era is very unique. We sort of talked about how you have this one giant kind of. Uh, uh, diverse, I suppose, I guess, empire in the East. And then you have a lot of smaller, uh, you know, homogenous kingdoms or even tribes uh, further West. Greece is singular among them all. There's a lot of kind of speculation as to why it is. Honestly, a, the, the two main factors I would point to personally are uh, the geography of Greece and the collapse of the Mycenaean civilization uh, about 500 years before what we're talking about here. That structure is that Greece is not a single political body. They're more of a cultural body. You've, you've made a terrible mistake. What's that? You mentioned an empire that fell. Uh-huh. Now you got to tell me about them. Oh, we'll, we'll get back around to the Mycenaeans. Don't worry. Okay. Just, just, just <laughs> give me a second. I promise. I promise we'll get there. Okay. Would I leave you hanging on this? Come on. You know me. You try. <laughs> No, but I wouldn't just ignore it. I would address it. Yeah. We'll come back to them. Just give me a second. Let's talk about the geography first. Okay. I don't know if you've ever seen photos of Greece. There are a lot of very, very tiny islands. And mm. the pieces of Greece that are not connected to islands, the pieces that are actually connected to Europe, they are extremely sparse, very rocky, very mountainous. Oh. So it's like a natural uh, wall almost. Kind of, yeah. There's there's a big mountain range that runs through basically the middle of Greece. That means that there's not a lot of farmland in Greece. That's actually a big reason that like traditional Greek cuisine is the way that it is. Um, mm. You know what grows really well on like sparse rocky uh, soil is olive trees and goats. I was um, gonna say olives. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And like you know, I don't want I don't want to make it sound like they're you know scrabbling for survival in like the you know in death valley or anything like that that's not true at all but when you're comparing it to mesopotamia literally known as the fertile crescent right like the place where agriculture was potentially born or at least one version of it uh yeah. greece might as well be the moon so you're, you're really looking at a, a place where it's not conducive to massive cities that support giant states surrounding them it's a place that really well supports small cities with sort of zones of influence with very small villages around them, but not, you know, number one, the populations don't get terribly large. Number two, it's really hard to march armies around Greece because of all those mountains. And yeah. so you don't have like a centralized Greek king exerting power over all of this area. The, the Mycenaean collapse that we talked about, um, I actually talked about it a bunch in the writing episode right before this. I'm not going to not talk about it now, but I have a lot more information there if you want to get to it at some point. Um, essentially, there was a, a there was a there was a very large uh, uh, civilization before what we would think of as the ancient Greeks in that region, uh, centered mainly on the island of Crete uh, in the city of Knossos, and they uh, they're responsible for a writing system that we still have not completely uh, deciphered. Um, what we do know is that they had a robust trade network. We know that they had a robust uh, palace system. They had uh, trade with Egypt. They had trade with Persia. Like they, they had extensive trade networks. We just don't know a lot about them specifically because all of their writing is lost to us. 
Um, probably because of uh, natural disasters, possibly volcanic activity. A large portion of Crete was uh, was destroyed. The population dropped immensely and their trade really suffered. And there was a, a fairly large like civilization level collapse in about 1000 BCE. This had the effect of sort of scattering these proto-Greek people uh, across uh, the Mediterranean a little bit more um, as they were trying to find new places to make a make a living, you know, becoming no longer under the thumb of the, the palace at Knossos. So, you know, they tried this, uh, this centralized thing out of Crete. It failed. There were already lots of people living in and around, you know, what we think of as modern day Greece. Uh, Athens, Sparta, all of that stuff. And they're going to, you know, evolve into the Athenians and Spartans that we're going to be talking about today. But there are also Greek speaking people who expand uh, as far as uh, modern day Turkey. And uh, those are the ones that we're kind of going to focus on for the start here. Uh, there's about 12 cities when when Greeks are talking or when ancient Greeks were talking about their relationships to one another, it was mainly in sort of a like they talked about tribes of Greek people, but it more practically uh, uh, related to language groups like dialects. Mm. The marker of civilization for a Greek person at that point in time was whether or not they spoke a Greek dialect. Didn't matter if it was the same one as you spoke. You could you could kind of figure it out, right? It was close enough. If you spoke a non-Greek uh, language, you were a barbarian. Like literally, that was the that was the line: speak Greek or don't speak Greek. Um, I've told this anecdote, and I don't know how many shows at this point, but barbarian is actually onomatopoeia. Yes. Uh, yeah, they they thought that anyone who didn't speak Greek just sounded like they were going bar 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 all the time, which is hilarious. Shouldn't it be pronounced barbarian then? That is not going to be the first thing that I uh, mispronounced today, and it won't be the last. <laughs> um, you know, hey, if you want to start a thing, I'll power to you. I'll support you. I'll, I'll put it up on change.org. <laughs> Perfect. That should make that should make a lasting impact. Mm -hmm. um, there are. <laughs> are we feeling bitter today or what? There are about 12 cities uh, all settled by Ionian Greeks. They, they, they speak a, a, a dialect known as Ionian. Um, there's about 12 cities founded in uh, or along the coast of Asia Minor uh, in territory that I suppose if you talk to the Lydians about it, they might consider theirs. Mm. Um, the Greeks didn't seem to mind terribly. And, you know, we're talking about a we're we're talking about an era where like you don't have like satellite level tracking of maps and things like that. I'm yeah, not so sure if you're not out there looking. Yeah, I'm not sure how long it took them to even notice that there were a bunch of Greek people on their coast, anyways. Um, so you know, for for a while they were independent, and uh, uh, there were other Greek speaking people further north and further south, but these 12 cities specifically sort of banded together a little bit into a region known as Ionia based on their, their, their language, mm -hmm. um, that, you know, had some level of, you know, trade between them and some level of, uh, uh shared defense and things like that. Again, these, these cities are functionally independent on like a political level, but there's a, there's a shared understood heritage there around 600 BCE, one of the cities known as uh, Miletus uh, 
Miletus? I'm not sure. Man, Greek. I, I'm not great at Greek pronunciation. Uh, probably Miletus. Miletus is very Latin sounding. Yeah, I was going to say that's very Latin. Miletus went to war with Lydia. They. This was in the middle of all of that uh, infighting um, where, you know, this isn't this isn't the time where King Croesus thought he could take on uh, the the uh, Achaemenid Empire. This is more during that, like that period where the Assyrian Empire was crumbling and mm, it hadn't okay. and it hadn't quite settled down into uh, those four spheres of power. The uh, the Lydians were still at war with the uh, with the Medians, or sorry, with the with the Assyrians. Uh, all of that stuff was happening during all of that. This one tiny Greek city goes. I think we can take Lydia. They're looking the other <laughs> way. Um, they How's that go? oh they lost. Uh, shucks, shucks, yeah. Uh, but they actually but they actually fought hard enough uh, that they managed to secure a treaty of uh independent alignment with lydia and essentially what that means is that they were guaranteed that lydia would not interfere with the uh, affairs of miletus specifically and miletus would no longer bother lydia and this was essentially like a guarantee for that one city that you'll be fine you can stay independent this is really valuable to have yeah, you got a foothold now. Uh, about 40 years later, Croesus, the same one that's going to lose Lydia forever, um, he ends up uh, invading the rest of Ionia. So he takes over the entire region uh, in about 560 BCE. Miletus is able to keep their special status within Lydia uh, because of that prior, uh, that prior treaty. But mm-hmm. Ionia in general is taken under Lydian control. Now, it still has sort of a bit of a independent streak to it. Like the Lydians try not to get involved too much, but they are expecting tribute from those other 11 cities. Mm-hmm. 546 BCE, uh, Lydia is destroyed. Oops. Oops. Someone did a f- <laughs> Have fun censoring that. I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> Lydia is destroyed. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna just barrel through. Going. Yep. Lydia's destroyed. And the the you know, before the before its destruction, um the the Ecumenids basically approached uh Ionia and said, Hey, will you help us in the war against Lydia? And they went, mm, no, that sounds like a bad idea. We're going to stick with Lydia. They've been treating us okay. Um, you know, there, there is with a with a vassal uh, relationship. There is sort of a give and take there, right? Like it's it's the same as yeah. vassalship through like individual vassalship in like a like a medieval context, right? Like yes, you you have to pay uh, a percentage to your uh, to your lord, but also they they owe you protection, and so there's at least a stability there. So they said no, but Lydia is destroyed. Uh, the Achaemenids take over the region, and with it, they annex all of Ionia. Ionia is not happy about this. They go to the Achaemenids and they said, hey, uh, we had this agreement with Lydia. As far as we're concerned, there's a continuity between you and Lydia. Uh, we deserve this same independence. And the Achaemenids went, sorry, who, who are you exactly? Yeah, I don't even know you. <laughs> And, you know, it's turned down. The Ionians are very upset. They revolt. Uh, and, like, the revolts are violently suppressed. But the Ionians are never going to be easy for the Achaemenids to rule. Like, they just... 
they're they're not going to take it lying down, you know? Mm-hmm. The Ekamanids respond by ousting the actual Ionian leaders and putting their own tyrants in control of each of the cities. That's kind of why they're having such a hard time. Like they've put they've put uh, Persian leaders in control of like entire states before. And yeah. like that tends to keep them in line. But the Greeks don't have a centralized leadership. The Ionians don't have a centralized leadership that they can just, you know, topple over that one person. They yeah. have to deal with 12 individual cities directly. And it's a huge pain. <laughs> you know, the Ionians aren't like unfamiliar with tyrants. In fact, that's been fairly common for them. But the tyrants that come up in Ionia are there because they're acclaimed by the people and because they're strong enough to take control of the city. The Persians have to walk this weird line where if they make the the tyrants that they put in place too weak, the people won't accept them. Like they'll just topple them and put in yeah. their own leader. Uh, but if they're too strong, they might you know, kind of get a sense that like, well, maybe a few of us could band together and try for independence against the Ecumenids. Like they might, like if they're actually that strong and that good at ruling, they might want to make a go of it on their own and they're handing power to these tyrants. So they have to lead this like middle, very, very narrow middle middle path. And it it often doesn't go well. These tyrants are switched out constantly because the people just won't accept them and they're usually not strong enough to keep them in line. So instead of you know avoiding both bad outcomes they're kind of getting they're they're kind of getting both at the same time (laughs) it it's just they're not the ionians are not people that are easily ruled under this specific system of empire they uh should have played more civilization and just learned to raise the city sometimes it's just gotta go yikes (laughs) they said callously callously just very casually real people who actually lived why don't they just destroy the entire city? Oh man! Just set it on fire, jeez. Let's let's bounce back to mainland uh, Greece because something wild happens in 508 BCE that we've already referred to. Um, in the city of Athens, the uh, the leader uh, Cleisthenes founds the system of democracy. This doesn't guy. just like you know. This wasn't brought by prometheus as a flame from mount olympus like this is not a this is not a a revelation or anything like that the reason for it is essentially that uh athens had been through a 50 year plus long uh tyranny by you know under a very very brutal tyrant and then his uh sons that had really had held, held the city in in terror for a long time and a splinter group of them had actually gone to Sparta to ask for help with overthrowing their tyrant. And they came and they helped and and Hippias was overthrown. But the Spartans, after they finished overthrowing the leadership of Athens, it turns out they didn't just go home and let the Athenians do their own thing. Um, they uh, weird, weird how they wouldn't do that weird how they wouldn't do that just out of the goodness of their own hearts um no they they installed their own uh you know spartan chosen oligarchy to rule over athens and the athenians went 
I don't think we like that. And so that's that's sort of the, the context of the founding of democracy. Cleosthenes mm. saw it as a way to undercut that Spartan-installed oligarchy by uh, redistributing power instead of being under one person or just a couple of people uh, across 500 uh, you know, wealthy landowning uh, citizens of Athens. That makes it very hard for the Spartans to control who leads Athens because it's not one person controlling it. It's 500. Yeah. Again, like as a direct line from this, uh, the next year, 507 BCE, the Athenians are worried that the Spartans are upset, mainly because they are. Um, <laughs> and they want help with uh, what they see as potential uh, conflict coming very soon from the Spartans. And when you're Athens, and when the year is 507 BCE, and when you're looking around the neighborhood uh, trying to find the biggest kid on the block to give someone a bloody nose, like there's really no other choice than the Ecumenids. Mm -hmm. And so Athens, again, because of this weird system that Greeks have, the city of Athens send a couple of ambassadors to contact Darius and like his representatives in the Ecumenid Empire. And so... Darius, the, the ruler of the largest chunk of Earth uh, to date, has a couple of guys from one city being like, hey, can you, uh, can you help can you us with this some, other city? <laughs> can you help us with another city, uh, please? And like literally this was like a this was again like a who are you scenario. Like they've never yeah. heard of Athens. They have no idea who the Athenians are. But the Persian uh, diplomats very politely receive them. And they kind of, when they're listening through all of this and with the perspective of, you know, the construction of the Ecumenid Empire, what they basically come to understand them to be asking for is supplication. As in, can we become part of the Ecumenid Empire yeah. uh, for your protection or for our protection kind of thing? Yeah. And uh, like again, you can, you can kind of see how that, that train of thought follows like that's what they've been doing is absorbing other territories under their umbrella and offering yep. significant protection in return um and so they said sure yeah if you want to if you want to join the franchise you know all we need from you is earth and water and earth and water is a traditional persian symbolic offering that's basically like i'm giving you everything that i have right mm. it's a symbol of giving you all of my territory, everything that's within a territory is earth and water and, you know, kind of refinements of that, I suppose. But it is yeah. it is the it is the thing that is asked for at the end of a war uh, when taking surrender. Uh, it is a thing that's asked for when uh, a territory is annexed. So that's what they asked for from the Athenians uh, and the Athenians not understanding what that meant when, oh, OK, that's all. Sure. Why not? Mm -hmm. uh, then the Persians uh, actually asked that as an additional concession, uh, Hippias, that tyrant that they just overthrew a year before, uh, be reinstated as leader of Athens. Hippias had actually fled to Persia and he kind of knew, uh, so, like he had managed to work his way into the Persian elite relatively quickly without being super clear, like where he came from. Yeah. But when he heard that there were th there are Athenian ambassadors there, he managed to kind of get the right ears to sort of 
try and get himself reinstated. The thinking mm-hmm. of the Persians there is this is a leader who the Athenians had already become accustomed to, even though they didn't really like him, but they knew him mm-hmm. and, and he was one of theirs. But, Devil you know, but uh, he was also a known quantity to the Persians and he owed the Persians a favor after taking him in after being ousted from the city. So this is the perfect, uh, this is that like, that's a, that line that we were talking about before, right? This is somebody who's uh, strong enough to actually keep people in line because he's proven himself able to do so. Uh, but he does owe enough to the Persians that they don't have to worry too much about an independence streak. Initially, the Athenian ambassadors agree. They say like, okay, yeah, I I guess we could take Hippias back. But when they got back to Athens and explained what what they had agreed to, it was so thoroughly rejected by everybody else in Athens that that these ambassadors were like stripped of all of their official uh, powers and none of what they had agreed to was ratified by uh, the Athenian leadership. I'm sure this will be fine and just peacefully resolved without further bloodshed. Yeah, probably, probably what's happening here is that the Ecumenids now see Athens as legal rebelling subjects. Mm-hmm. This is this is quite the misunderstanding we've got going on. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it, you can, you can very easily see how both sides got themselves into this situation, but yeah, it's, it's, um, this sort of thing is not easily resolved and it's not always resolved by talking things out. Um, the offering of earth and water is sacred. It's not something lightly gone back on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is going to be a massive problem. Let's, uh, let's take a, bri- a break here since we can see sort of what's on the horizon. And uh, when we come back, we'll, uh, we'll find out just how Darius feels about the whole situation with these uh, Athenians, whoever they are. Sounds good. Back on HI 101 here with Seraph Downey. What up? And we've just created just a just a terrible misunderstanding between the the Greeks and the Persians. Just awful. A little bit. We should be clear too. We we just created a big misunderstanding misunderstanding between the Athenians and the Persians. Ah, yes, that is an important distinction, isn't it? it yeah, and it is. It is at this point in time because there's no such thing as Greece. You know, there's there's a there's a concept of. You know the region of Hellas, which is what you know the the, the Greek word for their you know, themselves at the time. But like like we talked about, it's it's very like cultural in idea. It's that there are other Greek people here. They're constantly fighting each other. There's no centralized leadership or anything like that. And and cities are essentially independent to do uh, whatever they like, uh, as we just saw. Um, but that's a tricky distinction this is the only area of the world that's quite like that and for someone who's using who's used to dealing with a a massive empire like uh like darius i'm not sure how well that translates necessarily not long after this whole misunderstanding again that was 507 bce um it's it's not as though darius immediately goes like well time to time to load up the troops i mean it's a very small place very far away he has other concerns But in 499 BCE, there's trouble in Ionia. The tyrant of Miletus, the the same 
uh, city we were talking about earlier that had the the special arrangement with Lydia. Yes. Uh, the tyrant Aristagoras, he fell out of favor. There were political things going on. He seemed a little too... He was, he was about to be removed by Persian leadership. And he decided uh, essentially exactly what they had always been worried about. He decided rather than, you know, moving along and letting his successor be installed, instead he would incite all the other Ionian cities uh, preemptively. So before he could be removed, he basically said, we're Greeks. We don't need to be ruled by anybody. We're independent. It's what makes us Greek. Uh, let's stand up against this tyrant Darius. And so they went to battle. They declare war on uh, the Achaemenid Empire, and they send out uh, envoys to other Greek cities for help. Now, one thing I, I hadn't mentioned earlier is that the Ionians see themselves as being uh, like a part of the same subgroup as the Athenians. They would consider each other sort of distant family. Mm -hmm. And so they uh the ionians when they're when they're declaring war they send envoys to uh athens as well as a couple other cities the the other major one being eritrea asking for help asking for for support and the athenians who basically are not expecting the persians to help them at all you know they tried uh they uh were unable to, you know, meet in the middle. And so they're, they're not really feeling like they're burning any bridges necessarily. Uh, they send a whole bunch of troops to Ionia to help support this revolt. The Ionians won, uh, win one big battle supported by the Athenians and Eritreans, uh, and then basically spend the rest of the war on their back foot on defense. Uh, the Ecumenid Empire is, is, enormous like it's it's yeah i mean like just supply line logistics yeah looking at the map here do not favor the ionians you know the aegean sea isn't like the biggest sea but this is a long time ago those ships were not that big or that good um yeah yeah so the the war doesn't go terribly uh they managed to score a couple of like i said there was that one big battle and then there's another uh pretty reasonable bit of victory in 497 bce when they managed to ambush darius's personal army at the battle of padassus and destroy a pretty significant number of, of soldiers this is not a problem from like a tactical point of view or like you know like they're not going to lose that. That wasn't like a, a war changing thing. It's incredibly insulting mm. and it made Darius very angry. Sounds smart. Yeah. So, you know, the thing stretches out for another four years. Ionia is finally defeated in 493, uh, basically through like really long drawn out sieges. And that time doesn't really cool Darius off. If anything, it gets him far more heated about the idea of like who are these greeks anyways and why are they such a pain you know i managed to subdue egypt i managed to subdue babylon who's greece like never heard of her like <laughs> you know what i mean like it's just like he, he doesn't care about them at all and yet here they are causing him more problems than like these these thousands of year old civilizations that he's managed to bring into his fold and this like i i think i think his own level of being upset at these people significantly plays into this whole story 
so he puts together an army. He, he sends his uh, his son-in-law to lead it, Mardonius. Um, that's a pretty big deal. And Mardonius crosses into Europe. He uh, resubjugates uh, Thrace, so that that area we were talking about earlier, kind of at the um, you know just on the uh, European side of Turkey. Uh, yeah. It had been uh, technically Persian since 513 or so, but, you know, he brought in the troops and got everything all ship shape and, and especially under their thumb to uh, to create like a landing area for the rest of the army. Uh, he then moves into Macedon. Technically, Macedon had been like a former vassal, but still relatively independent. Uh, he subjugates Macedon completely, makes them into a, like a client kingdom. They have no political autonomy uh, outside of uh, Persia. Whatever Persia does, they have to do now. So he's moving his way through the Greek world fairly quickly. Yeah. In sort of a freak accident, there's a, uh, a storm that wrecks the vast majority of his fleet that's carrying troops back and forth between uh, the Achaemenid Empire and Greece. And because of that, he ends up returning to Asia for basically for the winter to regroup, resupply. But he's already taken over a chunk of the Greek world. Yeah. In 491, ahead of all of the or ahead of the uh, army that he's planning to send, Darius sends envoys to all Greek cities that have not been subjugated yet, which is like hundreds of cities. He goes to each one and demands, again, earth and water. And honestly, the majority of the cities complied. When you see Macedon get rolled like that, and you are the next city past Macedon, maybe it's easier just to surrender now and be on the winning side. Yeah. Because the armies that the Persians are fielding are quite large, and the fights are not drawn out. Like, they're pretty one-sided for the most part. The two main cities that do not agree to these terms are Athens and Sparta. Both of them not only refuse to offer earth and water, which by this point is understood to actually mean subjugation, uh, yeah. both Athens and Sparta commit what is a pretty large taboo in the in the ancient world and kill the ambassadors. Yeah, they kick them down a hole. You know, this is that place. And according to Herodotus, that is actually what, what happens here is the... Uh, the Persian ambassador is thrown into the town well, uh, which is a real thing that was kept in in cities in Sparta. Uh, hmm. it, I mean, it wasn't, you know, infinitely like bottomless or whatever, like in the movie, but like <laughs> you'd put people in the hole to punish them. In the hole you go. Sounds bad. I don't want to live in the hole. Um, but yeah, they, they toss him in the hole. They kill him. The, the Athenians likewise kill their ambassador. Um, and this is the part where I think... Um, I, I don't want to spend this entire topic like refuting the movie 300 because I think that's a different <laughs> thing. I, I think that's boring. And but like I, I think one of the things that is um, one of the most egregious uh, mistruths about the movie 300 is this idea that Sparta is the only city state willing to stand up against the Persians, and that's just patently false. Uh, the Athenians were matching them step for step. They are also killing the ambassador here, which, yeah, I, I mentioned, but like you don't kill messengers in the ancient world. Like there is like diplomatic immunity is this old. Um, yeah. Can't get anything done if you're going to shoot the messenger. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a functional thing, but it's also like a, like there's, there's religious protections involved in this too, right? Like it's, it's a, it's a serious thing to kill a messenger and it sends a, a massive message back to, 
uh, to Persia. Namely, we're not going to screw around on this. In 490, the Persians finally have uh, enough of their force built up again that this time, instead of sailing uh, kind of across the Hellespont, like uh, across basically from modern Asian Turkey into European Turkey, uh, they decide to take the fleet directly across the Aegean. Uh, they island hop from island to island in the southern Aegean, taking over all those like little islands, those little Greek islands as they go, uh, collecting more troops uh, as they're collecting tribute from these islands. And rather than risking the like fairly rocky shore uh, up along the coast of, of modern Turkey, they, they decide to go straight for uh, Athens, essentially. They're, they're aiming directly for Athens. They end up landing uh, initially uh, at Eritrea and decide to lay siege to it. Remember, they also supported Ionia in that revolt several years earlier. Eritrea lasts for exactly seven days. After seven days, well, they would have lasted longer, but after seven days, two residents, hoping for clemency from the Persians, decide to betray the city and open the gates during the night. Oh, geez. Did they get the clemency? They did not. Oh, you know what? Darn. They actually didn't. It's very surprising. So unlikely. The city is completely razed. Um, so there you go. They did have it in mind after all. Yeah, they friggin' learned their lesson. <laughs> <laughs> if only you were the one directing this, huh? Uh, would have gone so much quicker. No, I would have died way earlier. <laughs> I don't have the I don't know the grit for killing real people. Just zeros and ones. You, you and me both. Uh, so Eritrea falls, and they start marching south towards Athens. The Athenians are able to uh, collect, you know, troops from allies nearby. It's just that it's not nearly as many as they necessarily would have hoped for. The majority of Greece already having surrendered to Persia. They meet the uh, the Persian navy at uh, the. Bay of Marathon, which is in Attica. That's the region that that Athens is in. They were hoping the Persians were hoping to sail down from Eritrea to Athens, land a little bit before, get their troops all assembled, and march straight down to Athens and put Athens and put it under siege. This Bay of Marathon opens up right onto a plain, and the Athenian-led forces were, or at least Athenian allied forces, were able to kind of cut them off at the bay. Uh, to keep them from, you know, spreading further into Attica. They just held them there. Uh, They didn't engage them in battle for a couple of days until basically the Persians got fed up. They decided to start packing them back onto the ships and figured, listen, by the time this, this, uh, this army manages to march back down to Athens, we'll be able to sail there. We know it's undefended and possibly get a quick victory. Mm -hmm. The... Athenian-led troops waited until all of the Persian cavalry was loaded back onto the ships. Persian troops were a mix of heavy cavalry, and they they depended very heavily on the cavalry, because cavalry cavalry is an extremely uh, effective force at this point in in, uh, military history. So a mix of running over people is good. Oh yeah, absolutely. so a mix of cavalry and uh, what we would call like light infantry. So they're armed with like shields made of wicker, like literally wicker, like the chairs 
Um, They're light and they're fast to use and they can cover a lot of your body, but they're not necessarily strong. Yeah. Stop a blow or two. Yeah. And sort of like shorter stabbing weapons. Um, They're not terribly heavily armed. Uh, They're better armed than I think some historians have given them credit for in the past, Uh, but they're not wearing like metal armor. It's more like uh, uh, laminates and stuff. I assume this is just a numbers game then. They're going to try and overrun them? Well, no, the hope is... See, the the Greeks are fielding hoplites, and hoplites are heavy infantry. So they have a a decent amount of armor. Uh, They're wearing like full breastplates, greaves, uh, full helmets, and they've got larger like metal, uh, well, metal and wood uh, shields. Mm-hmm. Um, which are which are significantly stronger and longer spears. Uh, this is also the era where they've developed phalanx uh, tactics. I know this. Phalanx is very very useful. It's very strong. It's so strong. Um, it's going to be effective for hundreds of years. It's honestly very very good. Here's the thing: phalanx isn't always great at dealing with uh, cavalry because they can be flanked. Yeah, you don't want to exactly. I was just going to say you don't want to give up your flank. Yeah. Uh, however, they are very good at dealing with, uh, you know, wicker shield carrying light infantry. Yeah. So the tactic here is wait until the wait until the horses are back on the boats and then attack all the ones that are weaker than us. Nice. <laughs> it's not it's not the most elegant battle plan I've seen in my life, but hey, it gets the job done. I and say, it sounds effective. Oh, they are they are soundly defeated with this strategy. Um, the. All the all the numbers from Herodotus ignore every single number Herodotus ever puts forward. He's mm-hmm. he's trying to make it look as impressive as possible. They they they, they 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 are bad numbers. Um, however, we can get the sense that there are very very few Greek casualties and a significant number of Persian casualties. Those that are turned back by the Greek troops, those that are routed, that run away, they run back to the ships, and the Persians go. Okay, this is bad, but we at least have our cavalry loaded up. Let's get back down to Athens, uh, and we'll uh, we'll still try and attack there. See what we can get done. It's a long way; they're never going to make it. This is where that legend comes from about the Battle of Marathon, with the guy running on foot back from Marathon to Athens, letting everybody know about the Athenian victory over the Persians, and then dying immediately. And that's where marathons come from, apparently. Uh, so, yeah, it's about 26 miles away. You know, it's it's a solid march. Like, it's not it's not a short amount of or it's not a short distance to take a, a fully loaded army. Right. That being yeah. said, uh, as soon as the battle is over, the Athenians march immediately back to uh, the city. And they do actually manage to get there before the Persian ships. They set up at the uh, at the bay. They prevent the Persians from even getting troops off of the boats, uh, and the Persian forces are again forced to return home for winter. This is really important because it's proof that Persian troops can be resisted. It was kind of thought up until now that it just wasn't able to be done. Now, completely unrelated to this war, a uh, massive resu- revolt starts again in Egypt. Egypt is going to be a constant problem for the Persians. Um, Egypt is a constant problem, honestly, for everybody who, who's ever held it. It's a very volatile region, but um, for our for our purposes, yeah, the, the Ecumenids are going to have a really hard time hanging on to it. Uh, further Greek invasions are delayed at this point because they need to turn their attention to Egypt. As angry as Darius is about all of this stuff, Egypt is a more important part of his empire and he needs to attend to it more urgently. Yeah, Greece barely matters. This is more just settling a 
an annoyance. Whereas like Egypt is like, you know, Egypt. Egypt. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And it's not, it's not an annoyance that's forgotten about by Darius though. He, he, even, even while dealing with Egypt, he's working on new plans for a second invasion of Greece. He's working on building a bigger army to take to Greece. Darius ends up dying during the preparations to retake Egypt and the empire is taken over by his son Xerxes. Xerxes is absolutely willing to carry on his father's uh, vendetta against the Greeks. He does make a point of taking uh, Egypt first. So, you know, he's he's got that in mind, how important that is. Square that away. (laughs) Yeah, how important that is to the empire, of course. But uh, as soon as Egypt is subdued, he goes to planning a full invasion. Now, how tall is Xerxes? Short. And he has a beard. (laughs) And he looks nothing like the guy in the movie. No, he he's not a bald nine foot giant. Yeah, that that actor is actually significantly shorter than uh, uh, Gerard Butler too. <laughs> I really want to watch it again. You know, I know you and I were thinking of uh, watching it coming up to this, and it didn't work out. But uh, we should do a post. You know uh, what? Post recording watch. Yeah, I wonder if people would be interested in like a like recording oh, a commentary like a track. One? Yeah, yeah, I'd be up for it. That'd be good. Did you ever see the second one? They made a second one? There's a second one. What is it, 301? <laughs> uh, 300, I want to say Rise of an Empire or something. Oh, 300 Rise of an Empire? I don't know. 301 would have been a significantly funnier name, though. Is it still by Snacks Eider? Yeah, it is. I think it's I think it's significantly worse. Um, yeah, but again, I've never Rise seen it, so... I don't Oof. know. Yeah, maybe maybe people would be interested in this. Maybe we could record a watch along. Maybe we could do the second one at some point, too, and see how awful it turned out. I've never seen it, though. So that would be just like a straight up reaction. Yeah. Not looking forward to that one as much. <laughs> I, I, you know, hate watching can be enjoyable. In You're moderation. not wrong. You're not wrong. Anyways, we can we can talk about we can talk about those movies another time. Darius mm-hmm. is putting together this or sorry, Xerxes is putting together this army. They they're they're looking back at the first invasion and you know they've got basically a full ten years in between the first one and the second one. So they're they're really taking the time to plan this out and look at what went wrong with that first one, right? Yeah. The first the main thing that they they identify as an issue is supply line, uh, which is exactly what you brought up. Uh, you know. Uh, in reverse for covering the Ionian revolts, right? It's a long way to to support armies. Um, So they decide that, you know, rather than taking things on ships, which was, you know, causing significant issues for them, they engineer a pontoon bridge across the Hellespont. So across the strait between uh, Europe and Asia in Turkey, which even at its narrowest is over a kilometer wide. Yeah, that's... What? <laughs> I some of the stuff I read basically said that functionally speaking, there was no other empire in the world that could uh, make that construction project happen at that point in time. So, I mean, one of the benefits of recording remotely is that I can be looking at a map during this episode. Yeah. And I cannot like I, I, I don't know exactly where you're talking about, but I'm trying to find a place where this would make sense it's and it a, just it's essentially the narrowest part of the Hel- of the Hellespont it's more the it's it's towards the south of it um but that yeah. whole uh that whole turkish strait right like linking the mediterranean with the 
Um, oh, I can never remember the name of that sea. Well, you're looking right at it right now. The Black Sea? Um, there's a smaller sea in between the Black Sea and the... Um, it, it's basically a one sea end. Sea of Marmara? That's the one. Thank you. Uh, basically, at the south oh, end... Oh, I is, see. The south yeah. end is the Hellespont, and at the north end is the Bosphorus. Bosphorus Straits is where, like, uh, Istanbul uh, is today. So, before that, Constantinople, and before that, in this era, uh, Byzantium. Yeah, this is this is the other end of that uh, channel uh, of the Sea of Marmara. It cuts right through, eh? Yeah, it cuts all the way through. It's a very important shipping channel today. Like to this day, it's very I imagine. Um, but uh, yeah, at the at that south end there, where it's narrowest, which again narrow is is over a kilometer. It's like one point two kilometers. That's not narrow. So basically, they they bring a bunch of boats and and line them up and then build uh, bridges across them uh, held together by these massive cables, cables that are, you know, when linked together over over a kilometer long. And they actually build two of these bridges to support everything. The other thing they do is uh, they build a massive channel across the isthmus of mount athos uh an isthmus is like a a land bridge between two larger pieces of land where like it's almost cut through to a canal um going around this uh you know this canal cuts off a a route for their boats uh, that was where they were sailing when they were hit with that storm in the previous invasion it's very treacherous. It's kind of long. It's like a lot longer than it needs to be. If you can just sail straight through there, it's both much safer and much quicker. A lot of people tend to focus on the pontoon boats and for like very good reason. Don't get me wrong. I'm not putting down the pontoon boats, but building this channel is also an extremely impressive feat of engineering. God, just the the scale of the distances these people are covering to go and beat up some Greeks. <laughs> yeah. Well, and keep in mind, like, you're, you're also then marching, uh, you know, the, most of the most of the modern numbers I'm seeing on the size of this army, like, the, the size of this army is forever going to be under debate. People love talking about it. They, they generally tend to hover somewhere around 200,000 men, which That's is so a, many people. It's a lot of people. I don't want to march from my house to yours to, like, <laughs> hang out. And like that's like, and it's it's not uh, like ten it's, kilometers. Yeah, it's not <laughs> like know. it's not like unachievable. It's just like yeah, it's I too can far. Do it. I just really don't want to. Sure, no, that's that's fair. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's a long way. Like, now keep in mind, Herodotus would tell you that there's like two million of these guys, which is no, not true at all. But you know, we're still talking a couple hundred thousand people, and. It's not just soldiers. It's all of the stuff that goes along to support soldiers, right? Anytime you're talking about number yeah. of troops, you're talking supply about lines. supply lines, baggage trains, uh, doctors, cooks, um, you know, like there's the armorers. There's all these people that go along with it, right? Yeah. It's it's a massive movement of people across these two pontoon bridges. It's wild. Um, so anyway, let's let's not get too hung up on it. I suppose. Um, also, like it's impressive. <laughs> it's very impressive. It's it's worth it's worth noting for sure. All right, let's keep, let's keep going. Absolutely. So their muster also includes Greek states because remember a number of them are under Persian control. So you do yes. have Greeks fighting against Greeks in this war. Mm-hmm. Herodotus names 46 nations mustered under the Persian army. This is I mostly I mostly mention this to point out that, like, again, this this Persian 
army is not like or like the ecumenid empire in general is not like a homogenous thing right like it's brought right. all of these disparate groups together all to bear against uh a city yes yeah, a, a, a city <laughs> a pair but a, mo- at this point a city <laughs> and i mean I, I think at this point and especially under xerxes he's definitely seeing it more as like a like we need to just subjugate all of the greek people because they're all too troublesome yeah. Um, he tried just Athens and it didn't work out, um, or rather his father did. So Xerxes is also like famously like he's got a terrible temper, even worse than his father. Like there's a story about him like flogging uh, the, the, the Aegean Sea when the, the construction of the, the um, boats isn't going well. Like he, he has guys go out and whip the ocean. Um, <laughs> he's got a temper. That's yeah, very effective. It's, it's, it's weird. Maybe. I don't know. I I think honestly, there there have been people that have suggested it's more for like, like terrifying his men, like keeping them yeah. in mind in line, which honestly I buy a lot more than somebody angry enough to actually whip water. Um, but like, if I was a soldier in his army and I heard about this, I'd be like, oh man, I'm not, I'm not stepping yeah. out of line. No, that's that's a special kind of. Uh well, crazy. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> try not to use that word willy nilly. But yep, that's the one. Yeah, I think it works. Once again, in anticipation of the uh, invasion, envoys are sent asking for earth and water uh, to any mm-hmm. cities that have not already been subjugated. However, this time they specifically avoid Athens and Sparta. Um, Smart. Not because they're worried about the envoys, I don't think, really, uh, but more because they don't want to tip off the Athenians or the Spartans that they're planning to go to war. Um, They haven't actually fought the Spartans yet. The Spartans were late to the Battle of Marathon. The reason their army was late to the Battle of Marathon is that uh, it actually ended up being sort of during uh, the the Olympic Games period, which in Greece, like especially like where the Olympics are held, there's no fighting allowed. And Mm. all of Greece is usually under a general truce during the Games specifically. It's very important in terms of like, the game like it's important in terms of the games but it's also very important in terms of like diplomatic like reset button yeah you can meet with your enemies at the games without fear of being you know ambushed because there's this essentially religious uh taboo on violence during the games and so it gives a, a really good opportunity to like cool off a little bit have a chance to talk maybe still go to war afterwards but like at least you have that breather every four years Mm-hmm. The Spartans take that Olympic taboo extremely seriously, like more so than most other city states. And so they just didn't march until the Olympic Games were over. I mean, there's something to be said for that, I suppose. Sure. In general, the states that are opposed to Persia, because the envoys are like avoiding, like, phys- like geographically speaking, uh, Sparta and Athens, generally the ones that they don't end up asking for subjugation are the ones that are closest to Sparta and Athens, which kind of helps like concentrate the resistance to the Persians in those two areas of Greece. Yeah. They're also absolutely tipped off that the, Sp- that the Persians are back and looking for earth and water. So it doesn't really yeah. work. Uh, like it kind of backfires on them. So all of these Greek states who are used to never working together, uh, not having any centralized leadership, basically go, guys, I think we're kind of screwed. <laughs> we need to work together to overcome this or we're never going to win. Because, like, yeah, the, Ath- the Athenian army managed to win at Marathon. It was a much smaller army. And, like, now they're prepared for us. Um, we need to do something about this. 
about 70 cities get together and form a loose confederation, I suppose, under centralized uh, leadership. They're all meeting together. It's relatively democratic. Uh, you know, it's not as though one city is calling all the shots. But for the most part, what Athens and Sparta say in these conferences, that's what goes. Mm-hmm. For context, there's about 700 Greek cities. So this is about 10% of the cities in the Greek-speaking world. How, how far do these cities span? It's largely in the south of Greek uh, Greece proper. It really, really is. There's some from further north, like there's a bit of a patchwork. Um, It's one of those things that's easier to kind of look at a map, but um, it's really almost entirely in, well, Attica is the the region that's kind of dominated by Athens. Uh, Mm. Lacedonia is the one that's dominated by Sparta. That's also sort of part of a, a larger, like the the very southernmost part of Greece, where you kind of got those like fingers into yep. the uh, Mediterranean. That's known as the uh, Peloponnese. Uh, mm-hmm. So that whole region is is generally anti-Persian uh, as well. But if you go much further north than Attica, like uh, directly north from Attica would be Boeotia. Uh, they're anti-Persian, but much beyond that, uh, you're looking at uh, at uh, cities that are allied with Persia or trying to remain neutral. Already been rolled over or are capitulating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in spring of 480 BCE, the Persian army moves into Europe. Oh, we're getting so close. <laughs> originally, originally the plan of the Confederation, and like they don't have like a, a name for themselves, but I'm, I'm going to call them the Confederation because it's closest to the structure that they have. The original plan for the Confederation army is to. Uh, hold uh, the Persian forces in the Valley of Tempe, which is uh, relatively far north into Greece. Um, mm. But it was discovered, it was actually, they were actually tipped off by the King of Macedonia, or one of his his messengers at least, that the plane, the plane they were going to use could very easily be flanked by Persian cavalry. And mm. so they decided to abandon it and move back. Themistocles of Athens suggested a two-prong approach. Themistocles had been ruling in Athens for most of the previous 10 years. And it's interesting because his leadership in Athens had very much been like a referendum on how they were going to prepare for the Persians coming back. Mm. And it's really one of the first times you see like warfare being discussed in like a democratic forum. And it's kind of interesting how that works. There's a lot of people who go, you know, we want to focus on domestic affairs. And then there's another faction that coalesce around. We need to be prepared for when the Persians come back. Uh, Themistocles is leading that. And the majority of voters in, in Athens decide to back him. And where they put their money is into navies. Because they understand that as many people as, as uh, Persia is going to be bringing over, they're still going to be dependent on ships to some extent. Supply lines. Yeah, exactly. Greece is so rocky and so mountainous that even when you're in Europe, it's very difficult to march your army down. You need some sort of support from a navy. Are they, would they used to be like mostly coastal skirmishes? Oh, yeah. Or are they actually out in the Aegean Sea? I, I mean, they'll venture a little further out. We're talking like triremes at this point. Yeah, which okay. is, uh, you know, they're, they're relatively large boats, or boats, they're ships, they are ships. Yeah. Uh, trireme comes from the, the fact that they have three decks of rowers. Um, so, mm-hmm. I mean, each ship is going to have, uh, you know, you could have up to 100 people on a, on a ship fairly easily. They're, they're not yeah. small, um, but, you know, the, the closer they can stick to the shoreline, the better, absolutely. Okay. Um, 
mainly naval combat in this era is very much like ram them and then board them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's 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 land battles on ships, <laughs> essentially. Don't want to cross that T. Well, there's nothing to cross the T with. I, I mean, I suppose uh, ramming, That's I suppose. Fair. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, I was going to say I meant with the ram, but sure. Well, see, it's it, funny that you mentioned it. It's exactly the opposite problem of of oh, crossing yeah, the T. Oh yeah, I guess you would want to cross the T. You in would that absolutely want to cross the T. Yeah, uh, or have your T no crossed. No cannons. <laughs> yeah, no cannons. So crossing the T is when you're, you're you're sailing past the enemy's bow and blasting them with cannons while they can't hit you. Here, yeah. you don't want to be sailing across your enemy's bow because they're going to ram you, and this that's a really like a bad T-bomb. time. Situation. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, you, what, once you once you've been rammed, like they're going to try and bring it alongside, drop uh, gangplanks, and uh, come at you with spears. So it's yeah. There's we're we're not talking about cannons or anything like that. It's it's pretty yeah. it's pretty manual work still. It's very hand to hand. So yeah, the 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 Athenian navy has been built up significantly. So Themistocles suggests now that we know or now that they know how the Persians are coming, you know, that they're not hopping across the 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 Aegean Islands again or anything like that. He suggests a two prong approach. He's going to have his navy hold the uh, Persian, uh, the Persian navy for as long as possible while the Confederation Greek army is going to make a stand at Thermopylae. The reason for this is. Because of the way the mountains come up through uh, through Greece, there's a spot where at least the way things were set up or, or the, the way things were back then, there's been like sedimentary changes to the landscape and things like that. Uh, there's a spot at Thermopylae where on your west you have mountains and on your east you have sea. And in between, there's about a hundred meter wide stretch of land. Mm. This is further narrowed by a couple series of pillars. It's uh, narrowed by uh, some sets of walls that have been put up, um, like defensively, uh, specifically to defend that um, by Greek cities in that specific area. And it's, again, narrowed, as we mentioned at the very beginning, by creating marshes using those hot springs. So what you have is Greeks who are very good at holding a line because they've developed phalanx tactics holding against this massive Persian army. Now, keep in mind, this is not, and again, to, to point back directly to the movie, this is not only the Spartans that are doing the work along with like a couple bad troops that run away right away. That's not <laughs> yeah. the case here. What ends up happening is, uh, yes, the Spartans do send specifically 300 Spartan warriors. The reason it is so small and the reason that it's 300 is this. It is once again looking like the Persians are going to arrive at Thermopylae during August. That is during the Olympic Games again. <laughs> and the majority... Yeah, you just don't f- with the Olympics. They don't. They really, really don't. And what's more, there's also a... Uh, a religious festival called Carnea that's happening at the same time, which is specifically Spartan. Like the rest of Greece doesn't really uh, uh, observe it, but like there's also a prohibition against uh, warfare during Carnea. So it's like double taboo to go to war. Now, the Spartans still understand like the need for it. What they do is they send one of their kings, uh, Leonidas. Spartans had two kings at all times, by the way, uh, one mm-hmm. that would go to war and one that would stay at home for domestic issues. It also helps with continue, like like uh, uh, continuity. If one yeah. is ever killed, it makes a little bit of sense. 
so they send one of the kings with his personal king king's guard who are all volunteers who understand that what they're doing is is breaking a taboo they're not going to require the rest of their army to break that religious taboo they're expecting to send the rest of those spartan armies when the taboo is up but for now this is what they're sending now Yes, the King's Guard is 300 Spartans. Each Spartan is also supported by 900, or sorry, each by 900, come on. Each is uh, supported by three um, helots, which are uh, essentially enslaved uh, Lacedonians. Generally, helot class would be working all of the farms and things in Sparta. Uh, Sparta thrives like, massively on a on a on a slave uh economy uh at one point i think it was up to 85 or 90 percent of their population was technically enslaved by the state and had no rights whatsoever essentially just farming and then you have the elite spartan classes is, is less than 10 percent. so yeah each spartan soldier is going to have three helots who are also armed as hoplites so Instantly there, there's another 900 people that don't get talked about as much. And then there are other uh, cities in the area that are adding uh, soldiers as well. You know, you've got the Thespians, you've got the Parthians, like there's the, and you've got the Athenians who are sending armies as well. So rather than this being like 300 people holding this line at, uh, at Thermopylae, you're probably best estimate looking at more like 7,000. Mm-hmm. Which is still not a lot of people. No. It's a really small number of people. but And on, only 300 of them are quote-unquote Spartans. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so anyways, they post up at Thermopylae. They wait for the Persians. They send... They, they know about the path that goes back around behind them, right? They do know about it. And they send uh, a thousand men to, you know, to, to guard that path. Make sure that they aren't encircled. They hold that passage for two straight days, which is frankly incredible. What they're trying to do here, as I said, is delay until the Olympic Games are over and they can bring a larger army to bear. Yeah. The After the two days of successful defense against the Persians, you know, during which they bring some of their best soldiers to bear, uh, the Immortals, um, you'll hear about. The Immortals are actually an elite guard, like a king's guard. The reason they're called the Immortals is because there's always 10,000 of them. When one of them is killed, they're replaced by... Like, they're always kept at exactly 10,000. So when one is killed, they're immediately replaced. This is a Persian force, right? Yeah, that's the Persians. Um, You don't see them too often in battle, and when you do, they're usually very successful. They're extremely well-trained, well-equipped, extremely elite. The Greeks managed to hold against them as well. On the third day, uh, the Persians discover the path around the back. The legend is that a shepherd named Ephialtes tells them about the path and, like, sells them out. Uh, I have no idea if that's true or not. It doesn't really matter. Again, it's that thing where uh, Herodotus is trying to attribute some sort of meaning to it or whatever. The thousand guys posted at the top do try to defend it for a while, but it's much harder to defend than the actual uh, passage where the rest of the Greeks are. Um, So when they're encircled, essentially what happens is Leonidas, who is is leading this, this force, tells everyone... Uh, other than his own personal guard, that if they want to, they can leave. There's been a couple of things that have uh, have been proposed here. One is that uh, there's supposedly another oracle uh, prophecy saying that, you know, uh, basically insinuating that he's going to die at this battle and that he went there expecting to die. 
Uh, and so it was kind of a, you know, hold them off as long as he can, but knowing that he's not going to come out of it. Yeah. I think the most likely explanation here is that he's not, this isn't like a whoever can stay can, but whoever can is going to be dishonored. It's a, if I hold here for a little bit, I can get a several thousand fresh fighting men to retreat successfully. Yeah. Whereas if we all retreat, we're all going to be mowed down by Persian forces. So he's essentially holding a retreat maneuver. I think that's the most likely explanation here. I've been playing a lot of uh, that new Pokemon MOBA. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I use this move all the time. If my health is low and my team is losing the fight, I'll tell them to fall back and then just stun everybody and then die. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Sacrifice no. myself and save the team instead of us all getting mowed over. It's a classic for a reason, you know, like it's it, it works. It's um, very effective. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that's probably the way to look at it. The, the None of the Spartans are allowed to leave, obviously, but they're not the only ones that stay either. The uh, the thespians leave about a thousand people there, I think. Mm -hmm. A lot of stuff that we know about the Spartans comes from at least 100 years after this battle. So some of the stuff that you associate with the Spartans, we don't even necessarily know if it's true. So that whole thing where, like, you know, Spartans are never allowed to retreat. Well, that was sort of a reputation a hundred years after this battle. Was that reputation already established and it was a matter of honor or was that established by this last stand? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's kind of a, a tricky thing to, to figure out when actually looking back. Um, and I don't think it really matters too much other than, you know, it's a, it's a romantic story, but you know, yeah, suffice it to say Leonidas and a couple other, uh, groups of Greeks hold the line. Uh, as many as 3,000 allies manage to retreat uh, further back and will be fresh for the next battles with the Persians. Fun fact, this is where the in the in for the Halo fans, the, the idea that Spartans never die comes from. Oh. I read a documentary piece somewhere that said the whole idea of, so when a Spartan dies in Halo, they're never listed as killed in action. They're mis listed as missing in action. Sure. And this was kind of their way of um, recognizing that whole idea of Spartans never retreat. Hmm, interesting. So there had been the uh, the blockade uh, by the Athenian uh, navy at a place called Artemisium, uh, and mm -hmm. that battle had been like there'd been pretty gnarly losses on both sides. Um, it was essentially a stalemate, though. Once they heard about the defeat at uh, Thermopylae, by the way, that's the other thing. It was a massive defeat. Like the, the Greeks got crushed there. <laughs> Yeah, I, I know. Mean, I know it was a holding maneuver, but like, like even in the movie, like everyone knows they lost, right? Anyway, sorry, pet peeve, yeah. but like, <laughs> um, just look, just looking at the the route that the the Persians had to take. Mm -hmm. That's so much distance. It's a long way. Well, and I mean, it takes the months, right? But still, still, like it's oh, it's just wild to think that they moved that many people. Oh, absolutely. Um, anyways. Uh, Artemisium stalemate, the, the Athenians fall back because essentially they're only there to keep the Persian Navy support away from the army while Leonidas holds them off at Thermopylae. Now that Thermopylae mm -hmm. has fallen, there's no reason for the Athenians to be there, so they fall back. At this point, things are kind of bad in Athens. They're very, very worried about what's coming. And the vast majority of the population of Athens is actually evacuated out of the city. They're taken to uh, the island of Salamis, um, where they're hoping they're going to be a little bit more safe from the Persian armies. September, Athens falls to, uh, to the Persian armies uh, and is essentially destroyed. 
Um, the vast majority of, of what we would think of as being part of uh, ancient Athens uh, will have to be rebuilt after this war. Um, there was a small number of Greek soldiers that stayed to try and uh, defend the uh, Acropolis, um, mm-hmm. and they they will be they will be killed, and the whole thing will be destroyed. They're learning. <laughs> the Persians, they're they're getting it. Yeah, yeah, they got the idea now. <laughs> and like, this is such an obvious statement, but like, this is extremely discouraging for the rest of Greece, right? Athens yeah. is being like they've been such a, a leader in, throughout all of this. Um, to see it fall is is you know it, it's pretty upsetting. The reaction from uh, the Peloponnesians is essentially to destroy the very few roads that lead from Athens into uh, into their area of Greece and to start building walls and. You know, it, it's it's understandable they're trying to like defend their their own homes, but also the the Athenians are kind of like, guys, I thought we had like a deal here, like we got to put up some resistance. The Persian fleet manages to swing around uh, and come for the island of Salamis to start the invasion and like ultimate destruction of the Athenian people, but the Athenian fleet actually manages to lure the Persian fleet into a strait beside the island. And you get the exact same tactic as Thermopylae, right? Which is, it doesn't matter how many ships you have, you can only fit so many wide. And yeah. in that, uh, in those conditions, the Athenian navy manages to uh, pull a pretty significant victory against the Persian fleet. At this point, Xerxes starts getting cold feet uh, because his biggest accomplishment at this point is suddenly very vulnerable, which is the pontoon bridge. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how many soldiers he has in Greece. If the Athenians have learned about the pontoon bridge, which they almost certainly have, and without a Persian navy uh, protecting it, the Athenians will almost certainly make for the pontoon bridge, break supply lines, starve out the Persian army, and then uh, obliterate them. Xerxes, who, by the way, has been leading this force by like himself, which is unheard of right um there's there's no like conversation between him and leonidas but like he's with they the are army both present yeah, he's, yeah he's with the army which is wild um he decides that he's going to retreat back to asia they have to do something about this navy situation he leaves behind a general um his name's mardonius by the way all these names are like Latinized or, or I was going to say, or that Hellenized. doesn't sound very Persian. Well, it's because we don't, I mean, we do have records of what their Persian names are, but because the, the sources for, you know, basically until relatively recently were all Greek and Latin, they use the yeah. Greek and Latinized names. And, you know, I could make a point about being uh, specific about it, or I could use the names that people actually know. Um, it's a, it's not my favorite decision to make, but I've decided to go with what we know. Mardonius stays by with an elite force, uh, is hoping to kind of like continue harassing the Greeks, keeping them on their back foot uh, until the Persians can regroup and come back in force. Um, He actually attempts to broker a peace with the Athenians. This is a little bit of like sneaky dealing on his part. He's hoping that if he makes a peace with the Athenians, then it'll be a lot easier to deal with the Peloponnesians. So all those cities down, you know, including Sparta in the, the southernmost chunk of, of uh, Greece. Um, mm. The Athenians uh, reject it, but like it's not like the cleanest rejection. What they do is they, they make sure that they have Spartan representatives there during the rejection. But then they turn around and go to Sparta and say, listen, you saw what they were offering us as peace terms. 
um, we need you guys to step up as allies or we're going to go back and tell them we changed our minds. Great. It's a hard one to like feel wheeling like, and dealing. I, I mean, it's hard. It's hard to be too mad at them, right? Like their entire city is gone. So I have a question about the Olympics. Yeah. Are they over now? Because Athens is gone. They are over now. All right. So Sparta like more motivated to get their asses in gear they are but they're also motivated by defending lacedonia yeah um so like there's that that like defending the home kind of instinct kicking in here yeah 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 i mean you know there's there's the myth of the you know the athenians or the uh the the spartans never retreat and the spartans never you know shy away from battle but you know when the spartans house is maybe gonna get destroyed he might feel a little differently (laughs) um yeah yeah, it's it's a different thing so just redefine where the battle is uh, creatively exactly so June of 479, so this is after the winter of, of wheeling and dealing, uh, Mardonius res, res, uh, retreats to Boeotia because there's more, like it's a more open uh, area of Greece and okay. he's hoping that he's not going to be on such a, at such a disadvantage when fighting hoplites because uh, they'll be able to spread out on a plane, cavalry will be able to flank them and so on. Uh, he's yeah. hoping for a better tactical position. The Confederation army uh you know, having been chastised by the Athenians, uh, marches out under uh, Pausanias, who is the Spartan regent replacing Leonidas. Leonidas's son was too young to take over as king, so he's mm-hmm. holding the place until his son is, is old enough to take over. Yep. Um, so Pausanias marches forth with this massive army, which does include all the Spartans now, meets them at Plataea. Massive battle. Uh, it's kind of interesting because the Greeks are not good at coordinating with each other, and they actually managed to end up split into several different groups around the battlefield, uh, defending different hilltops, but not in a condensed like single force. Mm. Mardonius, seeing this, overcommits, trying to take them over, and uh, splits up his own troops to take them over, uh, and in doing so, like is is too far stretched. The Greeks managed to rally, turns the tide the other way. Mardonius himself was killed by uh, specifically Spartan warriors uh, who see this as avenging the death of Leonidas. Persian forces are completely routed and without strong leadership, they don't really function very well. They kind of scatter throughout the Greek uh, countryside and Greek Mm. forces hunt them down and destroy them uh, almost entirely. So it sounds like they never really get to Sparta. No, they're never actually fighting in Sparta. Well, that's good. Mission accomplished, boys. Absolutely. Just had to, to, you know, throw Athens under the bus. Yeah. Sort of. (laughs) And and the Spartans actually feel exactly that way, which is mission accomplished, right? Um, That being said, at the exact same time, Herodotus says same day. That's probably not true. At the exact same time all of the uh, th- this victory comes at Plataea, there's another uh, sea battle at Mycale, uh, where the rest of the Persian fleet is either sunk or scattered. It's a pretty complete victory in 479. But news of this victory sets off a new series of Ionian revolts. And this puts the confederation in a weird spot, which is that the Spartans are saying, we're done. We drove out the Persians. That was the whole point of this. And the Athenians are saying, no, like the Ionians are Greeks too. Like until all Greeks are free of Persian 
uh, oppression, this isn't over. We need revenge. We need to free our brothers. And the Spartans said, have fun with that, <laughs> essentially. Um, the, uh, the, Athenian tr- uh, the Athenian fleet sails straight for the Hellespont. They want to take down that bridge exactly the way Xerxes was thinking. The only reason they hadn't up until now is that the Persian fleet had stayed to continue harassing them and they didn't want to leave uh, their allies undefended. Well, specifically Salamis undefended. Now that they're free to do so, they go up to destroy the the the, the pontoon bridges, but they found it actually already gone. They hear word that it had been taken down by Persians and that they were in the nearby city of Sestos. Uh, so the Athenian troops... Um, with some help from Sparta, like they kind of managed to keep them in for like this part. Uh, they besiege the city of Sestos. They take it. They take the city over and they take the cables of the bridges back home as trophies. They then turn around, head back home. But the Athenians aren't like entirely done with it. They're still like, we got to keep pushing for Ionia. We still have to continue pushing the, the Persians. They attack the 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 island of Cyprus, um, essentially loot it uh, to use to pay for more war supplies. A little bit of Spartan support here, very reluctant. And finally, they sail to Byzantium with the intent of taking every uh, passage from Asia into Europe uh, that they know of uh, and holding it as Greek territory rather than Persian territory to prevent an invading, invading army from ever coming again. Spartans help take Byzantium. Uh, you know, they've got control of both of the straits. Uh, Pausanias is actually left in control of Byzantium. Um, but the Spartans were like, literally, we're done with this. Pausanias turns out to be like a really poor diplomat. He ends up antagonizing a lot of the uh, formerly um, Persian sent, uh, uh, Persian Greek cities. Um, so in Thrace, in Macedonia. And like, you can kind of understand where he's coming from. But also like, this is not this is not helping the cause. Um, and there ends up being some weird, like internal Spartan politics. The, the, the result there is that Pisanias is basically, um, uh, called back home and removed from his post. Like it's very, the whole thing is very like embarrassing for the, for the Spartans, but they say to the Athenians, like, we're literally done. Like, this is it. You've got everything you want. We're not helping from now on. And so because of this, like withdrawal, you know, the, the, the Athenians really end up being the only power still leading that confederation. And you would think that the confederation would break apart, that they would go their independent ways, that, you know, the beacon of democracy would shine finally in, in the Greek cities. But in reality, what ends up happening is like the Athenians are used to bossing around 70 cities worth of other Greek people and they like it a lot. And so they keep this confederation together and rework it. This rework um, explicitly uh, ex- excludes like any of the Peloponnesian cities, uh, including Sparta. So Sparta's whole sphere of influence, which is you know a little insulting. And what they do is they basically tell everybody who's left is you have a choice. You can either commit military troops or you can pay taxes in. And yes, we will defend you, but we're also going to use this to continue fighting against our common enemy of Persia, who really hasn't actually been that interested in fighting back to be honest with you yeah they have you know many other borders mm-hmm. egypt is probably revolting by now i can't remember for sure but we're due yeah 
there's essentially like a, a difference of opinion in what to do about Ionia between the Spartans and the, and the and the Athenians that leads to this ultimate breakdown. The Athenians still believe that they can free Ionia. The Spartans say, listen, we can't protect it. It's too far away. It's too deep in Persian territory. We got to let it go. They proposed basically transplanting everyone from the Ionian cities to mainland Greece, giving them their own cities somewhere in Greece, but bringing them home basically where they can actually be protected. Yeah. And the Athenians wouldn't go for it. I mean, we've got all this land. I don't want to give it up. <laughs> uh, this, this newly formed Athenian led coalition is, is uh, referred to as the Delian league. And they basically spend the next, next several decades, you know, liberating Thrace, uh, harassing Persian outposts, nibbling away at Persian borders, maintaining, um, you know, the borders of Ionia, things like that. Uh, there's a there's a big victory over the Persian both navy and army uh, in the 460s called the uh, the Battle of Eurymedon. Uh, in 465, Xerxes is assassinated by another, you know, by by a coup internally in Persia. It has nothing to do with the Greeks, but his son Artaxerxes comes to the throne, and he's a little less interested in fighting the Greeks yet. Um, you know, like it's just really not something that they're looking to do. Um, they have other concerns. They have a big empire to run. They lost against the Greeks. They've given up that dream. They don't care anymore. Yeah, and I mean, there's something to be said for recognizing that you've massively overextended into an area that's a pain in the butt to oh, uh, to stay in absolutely where where is the where is the persian empire capital at at this point do they have one yeah they, they, they do they do it's um i'm gonna I'm forget the name Iran. yeah I, i'm gonna get forget the name but it's in it's in modern day iran um it's pretty far away. It's pretty far away. It's this it's is even farther away than like the dis. Like I'm over here, like uh, ooing and aahing over the distance between like their pontoon boats in the that strait that you mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and like Athens. Yeah. And like, okay, I'm just roughing it out here. Iran's like two or three times that distance. Oh, at least. <laughs> yeah, it's a mass. It's a massive empire. It's very, very yeah. big. Um, large yeah and, and uh, a chonker you might say you could you could say that i suppose um look at this i have in my notes uh that there was another revolt in egypt no <laughs> oh, oh. the delian who, league who would have guessed the delian league attempts to support it like they throw their army behind this uh this egyptian revolt literally entirely because it's uh against persia that's yeah. the only reason it's just to weaken persia um this revolt is once again, unsuccessful. The Persians are much more committed to holding uh, Egypt than they are to anything to do with the Greeks. There are domestic issues for the next decade or so within Greece that prevent them from launching any more attacks, you know, throughout the, you know, uh, 460s and 450s. Um, and the Persians don't take advantage of it whatsoever. Um, this is all internal stuff between the Spartans and the and the Athenians. Mm -hmm. And the yeah, the 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 Persians really don't seem to care uh, all that much. Uh, in 451, there's uh, a final Greek campaign against, once again, the island of Cyprus. Uh, it's a Delian victory. The Athenians win it. Um, but after that, they kind of... The official story here is that they sort of lose their appetite for raiding against the Persians. They just have other things to worry about. There is a very contentious idea. It's sort of... It's sort of one of those things 
like the history equivalent of imaginary numbers or we're not <laughs> sure uh maybe not exactly like the perfect analogy but like we don't know if it actually existed but a lot of things make a lot more sense if it did and we can talk about sure. the thing a lot more he- cohesively if it did it's called the piece of callius and if it existed Basically, what would have happened is that after 451, the Athenians would have sent envoys to the Ecumenids and said, listen, we've been at war a really long time. It's been over 40 years now. Why don't we call it quits? But we're going to need some terms from you guys. We've been beating you constantly. Like, we're not just going to stop for nothing. And essentially, uh, what they asked for was protection for Ionia on the coast of Asia Minor. Uh, yeah. they, they set out some very specific terms. Again, if this piece existed, we have zero uh, direct evidence for it. Um, if this piece existed, uh, they set terms in terms of like how close to the coast of the Mediterranean the, uh, the Persians could field an army, which was, you know, set far enough to protect the Ionians, uh, you know, how far they could, uh, you know, all, all of this stuff, where they could sail navies, things like that. And it's one of those things where, like, from the Greek perspective, it seems like a massive win. Like, it seems like they imposed a lot of really restrictive things on the Persian Empire. And from a Persian point of view, they were kind of like, who cares? Yeah, will you sure. stop annoying us if we, if we agree to this? <laughs> yeah, this is the equivalent of, like, making a deal with a mosquito, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Please, please stop bothering me. Yeah. Um, again, we don't have record of the piece of Callius other than like, rec- you know, references to it like more than a century later. But like the functional uh, result, regardless, was peace for Ionia and independence for Ionia. Those cities continue to be uh, independent. The Persians leave the Greeks alone, at least directly in uh, uh, military conflict. Um, their preferred method of of uh, intervention after that ends up being uh meddling in politics with money it turns out that's actually a really good way to mess with people (laughs) um you know turns out who knew over the next 50 years the persians and the greeks do not come into direct contact with each other militarily like yes the persians send uh indirect support to the spartans during the peloponnesian war but that's not like a persian army fighting a greek army those troops are just put under spartan control you know yes they're going to support certain candidates for uh leadership of athens with uh with uh, vast amounts of money because it would be in their interests but that's not warfare yeah that's that's mainly how they keep the greeks in line they tend to play both sides of the spartans and the athenians uh in order to keep them in constant conflict with each other as much as possible and that's not to say that they wouldn't have been in conflict regardless but it definitely helped. With the end of the fighting against the Persians, the Delian League officially becomes the Athenian Empire, and it refuses to release its members, even though its initial purpose is completely gone at this point from any perspective. You know, it's not even about fighting for Ionia anymore. Ionia is fine. Um, even though that purpose is gone, every single city that uh, remained under the Delian League was sort of just rolled into the uh, the Athenian Empire. They now owed Athens tribute. They were now expected to fight for Athens in any conflicts. And I I find this so uh, again. I suppose dramatic irony is the is is the way to refer to it. Where it's like 
this whole thing started because you weren't this big centralized power. It's because you were an independent city able to do what you wanted. Greece was different because it wasn't a big centralized empire, right? Like the thing I thought we were fighting for here was to maintain that independence, that uh, history, that way of life, all of that stuff. And what you end up with is not a Greece ruled by the Persian Empire, but a significant portion of Greece ruled by an Athenian Empire. And, you know, functionally for somebody in, say, let's say Thrace, for example, who's very far away from the center of Persia, what's the difference between paying your tribute to a very distant Persian emperor or a very distant Athens? Yeah. I mean, like, at least he's Greek, but at the end of the day, he's still taking your money. Still taking your money. I, I, I just find that I just find that really interesting, especially with that um, framing that we talked about earlier with, uh, you know, this 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 war uh, being a successful defense of a free Greek way of life. And this is the result. Um, yeah. You know what I mean? The opposite of that. It's sort of the opposite of that in a way. And I'm not. You know, this isn't this isn't me being an ecumenid apologist or anything like that. It's not to say that the the Greeks necessarily would have been better off under the Persian Empire. That's uh, it's impossible to say. But like, I'm not sure that the 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 goal of preservation of a way of life is necessarily achieved in all of this. And uh, yeah, that's 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 kind of interesting to me uh, as a as a result of a conflict that you know not only shaped a massive part of the world, but also has this reputation of, um, you know, something special being, uh, being preserved, being held up. And, and yeah, that's, that's really not the, the final result, at least in my estimation. If you were to look forward, you would see this conflict between Sparta and, uh, Athens escalate into what's known as the Peloponnesian war. Uh, those two powers are going to be, uh, at war for, uh, the next several decades until, uh, eventually, the the Athenian Empire will crumble under its own weight. Essentially, um, so I mean, our boy Alex has to be coming to the scene in a couple hundred years too, right? We're not too far off. We're you know 120 or so years away, yeah. um, and what he's going to do is sweep through the remains of the Athenian Empire and straight into the remains of the the Persian one, right? Yeah. Uh, it's uh, skip that all up and then die at 32. That's yeah, right. Um, no, it's a lot of it's it's a lot of uh, I don't know. It's a lot of bloat. It's a lot of extra weight. It's a lot of things that are too big to last for very long. I suppose. I mean, that's not determinism. That's more just how things worked out. But um, I don't know. It's it's I I for a very very long time I kind of bought that line of like, well, you know, maybe something special was kept under under this uh, under this war. It didn't take too much looking into it to to disillusion myself of that notion. Um, so yeah, that is the Greco-Persian Wars. It's a little different than the movie. More interesting, less cinematic perhaps, but not necessarily. Generally better clothes covered up, <laughs> you know. Yeah, you know, armor, hoplites and all. <laughs> who knew, who knew putting on a metal breastplate would actually be very advantageous in warfare? Well, I mean, my pecs are made of steel. Ha ha. <laughs> I can't think of a better way to end this one, so let's call it there. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on and doing this one for me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a good one. When two major powers come into contact, preservation is often a goal and rarely a reality. 
Even success in conflict is transformative, and the Greco-Persian Wars are no exception. They left behind a Greece sharply divided, split between two major domestic powers instead of one foreign one. This would set the stage for decades of war that would weaken the Greek world significantly. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. For example, in this episode, I say Lacedonian instead of the correct Laconian uh, several times. The best explanation I can come up with is maybe getting some wires crossed with the proper pronunciation of Macedonian with a hard C, Macedonian but that doesn't stop it from being really painful to listen to yourself say in the edit. That correction and more are on the site. If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash hi101 to make a monthly pledge or paypal.me slash hi101 for a single donation. And remember, hi101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee there's plenty of interesting information out there we didn't cover. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.